When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 468 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, joined by Jill. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I almost just started giggling because we just had a conversation about how you struggle saying numbers when we do the beginning of the podcast, and then I like almost lost it when I was doing the intro. So I don't know what it is. I don't even remember when it started. I mm-hmm. feel like it probably started when we entered the 400s, and for some reason, my brain... <laughs> just wants to be like four six eight i was like that's not this isn't a phone number (laughs) well we also discussed um for people who listen to uh other evergreen podcasts um podcasts other evergreen channel podcasts the the podcast channel we belong to they asked us to make a um like a teaser that you hear you know lots of times on podcasts when they talk it's almost like an ad for their podcasts uh, if you listen to other ones, you'll hear Jill and I struggle through a teaser pretty soon that'll get put up because we can't read scripts, even if we write them ourselves. We're very, very bad at that kind of stuff. That's accurate. That's accurate. Yeah. Um, so today, and I'll let you talk about which particular one we're going to do, but we haven't talked about our Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge in quite some time because pandemic got, you know, that happened. And now there is other stuff to, to talk about. Um, but we wanted to get back to it. Every year for the last two years, we've done a, a reading challenge. We have a bunch of different uh, reading tasks that you can do that we talked about at the beginning of the year. You can go back to one of our early 400s episodes on our on professionalbookrooms.com and um, see all the challenges. It's, it's still in August and there's 12 challenges. So you've got time if you want to start it now. Um, so we're going to do one of those today. And do you want to talk about the one we're going to pick? Yeah, so we are going to talk about books that were published between 2000 and 2010. Uh, and I feel like I remember when we put the list together at the end of last year, we selected that time period because it was like far enough away where you probably hadn't read any of these books in a while, but also not so far away that they were like, older classic i don't remember we just like randomly were like 2000 2010 sounds great yeah i will be honest i was like struggling because it's so many i mean this is a stupid obvious thing to say like so many books come out every year that it was almost overwhelmed by choice and so i was trying to go back to like my old old goodreads stuff and then find books because then 
what I started realizing is this is the time when I was in college and grad school and then a little bit beyond. Well, in college, I didn't read any new books because all of my classes were, you know, of course, just like every, you know, literature class. It's like read classic Roman literature or classic French romance. And it's like there's very few <laughs> modern day literature classes that you would you would do. So, um, yeah, I well, maybe for you. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say when I went into our shared doc for this at this morning to find mine. I was like, I wonder if have Jill had any struggle and like no struggle no your struggle list here. just right there just like waiting and I was like Shoot. I had to like take stuff off because I was like I could put 20 books on here if I wanted and I didn't want to pick books like there were some that I almost put on but there are books that I've like talked about a whole bunch over the year or like since we've been doing this podcast so I wanted to not to do those so yeah i kind of did the same so we will put all the books in the show notes so you don't need to write them down like always um and if you want some additional recommendations for this or any other challenge um you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com or you can tweet or instagram message us uh, at probooknerds maybe twitter more often than i don't really check our instagram direct messages all that frequently and i don't know that i get notifications maybe just tweet at them This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Grainger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Grainger, for the ones who get it done. Um, you have one more than I did because I literally like I was just out at six. So do you want to kick us off? Sure. So I'm going to start with now I'd be like, which one do I want to start with? Okay. Um, I'm going to start with Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood, which is okay. Y'all know I'm a big Margaret Atwood fan because it's come up often, <laughs> <laughs> often in the show. I'm a big Margaret Atwood fan. This is my favorite Margaret Atwood book of all of her books. I feel like I've read like 95% of them. Um, I love this book so much. So this is, admittedly, it's going to be, if you are someone who likes to lean into things, this is the book for you during this current time right now. If you are not someone who likes to lean in on things, maybe don't read this one for the challenge. Um, but Oryx and Crake, um, we start with a character, um, his nickname is Snowman, and we eventually learn his name is Jimmy, and Jimmy is living in a world right now where he seems to be the last human on the entire planet, um, save for a unique group of creatures, Creatures isn't quite the right word, but um, these creatures, humanoids, known as the children of Crake. Crake was Jimmy's best friend, and um, way back, and Crake had basically set like a plague on the world. (laughs) And Jimmy is sort of left taking care of the aftermath, and these children of Crake had survived, and it's 
it's just, oh God, it's so good. And it's one of those books when you read it. So it came out in 2004 and, you know, Margaret Atwood has often shied away from the term science fiction and um, considers herself more of a speculative fiction writer in that she kind of looks ahead and sort of predicts possibly not predicts but sort of looks ahead and be like and says like this is a reasonable place where we could be mm-hmm. in the future like you look at the handmaid's tale which was written 30 years ago and it's it's a little weird when you yeah. look at where we are now and orcs and crake a lot of the things that come up in orcs and crake um in terms of the science um behind not just the plague but you know like other things there's like this whole thing with like video games that that um jimmy and and craig play and like youtube type stuff and it's just it's it's utterly just so uh it's so good but again like if you're not someone who really wants to lean into things Mm -hmm. maybe not read this one um it is the first and what ended up being a trilogy it's the mad adam series that's mad adam both 2ds um and you sort of find out uh well it doesn't matter i won't i won't spoil anything so yeah. anyway that is uh that's oryx and creek yeah uh sticking with authors that we've talked a fair amount about on, on our podcast uh, my first one is by wendell berry it's called andy catlett uh, i taught i think like the last three augusts i've talked about wendell berry um as joe and i have both discussed i i'm a very cyclical reader like i read specific types of books during specific times of year. Uh, we joked during our August preview episode that I, I have ushered in pre-spooky season, which is true. I am reading a bunch of horror, but also during this time of year in August, I get like super nostalgic and I don't know why. And I love um, the idea of like American pastoral type books and like books set on farms and like simpler times. And I think a lot of it has to do is like this time of year always reminds me of like harvest and coming into autumn and like going back to school and all this stuff. So uh, Andy Catlett is one of Wendell Berry's books that are set in Port William, which is a fictional, uh, small kind of like country type of a town in um, like the Kentucky area. But he has all these stories and you can read them in really any order. There, There is like if you Google Port William Wendell Berry book order, like there is a way that you can read them in a specific way where you'll be introduced to characters that then show up randomly later on. But it's not super important you can kind of read them anytime you really want and it's just like there's fun little easter eggs where you'll see like oh that's nathan coulter that was there was a book called that and he's in this book randomly but andy catlett is a really really good one especially if you are feeling nostalgic uh because it's all about this character andy who goes on a bus trip to visit his grandparents in port william when he's nine and it's like his first kind of step into manhood is sort of how it's described is like it's this experience of his solitary voyage which thinking back to it now like sending a nine-year-old on a bus completely by themselves is a wild thing that you wouldn't you wouldn't do nowadays but it's him looking back 50 years later on all of the people that he met for the first time and how life used to be and now he's looking at like how modern life is really like crowding in on everyone and um it's just thinking about all these stories and like all of the books in port william the, in the Port Williams series, I, I've joked and said in the past, like, they're really low stakes. Like, you know, you're talking about a, uh, a virus overtaking. I feel like a lot of the books I've been reading lately as well, like, there's these, like, massive implications of things that are happening. And, like, the ones that take place in Port William are just, like, someone is no longer friends with someone who they were 
friends with when they were younger on the farm or like you know somebody is trying to make a deal to get their cotton like their wool and their cotton from their farm to get a better price for it and it's just like it's really like simple stories but you just have this it's like it's like a warm blanket like these conversations that these characters have with each other and everything that Wendell Berry writes is very based in um, nature. He's a, he's a naturalist, so he writes both fiction and nonfiction, and a lot of them has to do with like the Midwest and that type of um, type of being being a farmer and being on farmland. So uh, Andy Catlett is a really nice one to start with, but and again, then you're gonna fall in love with the whole Port William series. And they're all really short. Like if you listen to the audiobooks, they're like seven or eight hours each, so you can kind of rip through them, which is great. Um, my next one is The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. Oh, you guys, this book, this book like broke me the first time I read it because it's just, <laughs> it's so good. And it's one of those books, like every time I go back and reread it, I feel differently about it. Um, or I guess like, yeah, uh, not in a bad way, but just, you know, you pick up things differently or you interpret things differently. So this is about um, a couple, Claire and Henry. Claire um, is, actually we'll start with Henry. Henry um, was born with a uh, chromosome disorder. That means he's a time traveler. And he, it's not like a choice. He can't necessarily choose where or when he goes. He's just sort of like spontaneously disappears. <laughs> from time and ends up somewhere else and um when he's in his 30s he's 36 he ends up in a meadow and he meets a six-year-old named claire and so claire is living her life chronologically the way us normal folks do who don't have this chromosome <laughs> disorder she's living her life chronologically and henry sort of keeps popping in and out um over the course of her life but because of how his thing works you know, he doesn't meet Claire until he's 36, but Claire um, runs into him when she's like 15 or something like that. You know, like it's just the way it all works is is kind of hilarious um, in a way. And so this is just sort of about their relationship and the fact that, you know, she knows things that he doesn't know yet in terms of things that have happened um and it's it's just such a good story in general and i i've always it's one of those books where i've always sort of loved the title because it's called the time traveler's wife and you read it though and you think it's kind of about henry but it's not you know, it's about his wife, but also she's just sort of relegated to being the time traveler's wife. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's layered. Um, but it's so good. And I, I think I mentioned this, um, but in Doctor Who world, there's a character named River Song and she and the doctor meet at a time when he has no idea who she is. Um, but she knows exactly who she is. He is, and has clearly known him for a while. And I remember reading that um, Stephen Moffat sort of got the idea for that from the Time Traveler's Wife, which I love. Um, so, yeah, it's so good. But it's 
yeah, it, it, the ending kind of broke me just as a full warning. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely not, it's, it's a sad book for sure. Yeah, it's, it's just but. like, there are things where even though I have read it multiple, there's, there's like one thing in particular where, um, I should say like, you know, I say Henry meets her when, when she's 30, he's 36. That's not necessarily true they you know when she gets older she runs into him when they're like in their 20s and he has no idea who she is but she has known him for her entire life basically um and they get married and and all that stuff um but there's a thing that happens in her past that is sort of hinted about a lot um and henry was there but henry doesn't discover it until he's like much much older and he happens to like time travel back to it and it's just this moment in this book that every time I know it's coming <laughs> and it still is just, it still always catches me off guard. Mm. Um, yeah. It's just a really lovely book, uh, but it, it can be a little sad. So. Yeah. Um, my next one is Sag Harbor by Colson Whitehead. And as I was putting this together, I grabbed a couple of books from really well-known authors who maybe you haven't discovered um, because, you know, Colson Whitehead, th- this was a best-selling book, but it wasn't like he, Colson Whitehead became like all caps Colson Whitehead when he wrote The Underground Railroad. Um, and, you know, now there's the Nickel Boys and he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. But I feel like, I don't know, I tend to not do this with books where like if I discover an author later in their career, I, just because there's so many books that come out, I don't always go back and like reread some of their old stuff. Um, whereas I will with music, like if I hear a band, I'm like, oh, this is really great. And then someone tells me, like, well, they have three albums. And I'll go back and I'll listen to them because it's a quicker process. But um, in case you, the first thing you ever read by Colson Whitehead was The Underground Railroad, that's okay. But he's been writing books for much, much longer. And Sag Harbor is a kind of coming of age story. Um, I also find during this time of year, again, I think of like, I really enjoyed my high school experience. I had this really tiny high school and um, we were all really close. Um, I think I've talked about it a little bit. I'm the, I was the last graduating class in this school. Like we, it closed, but something happened. We're like, we we're all still really, really close to each other. So I still think fondly about like the beginning of school years, even though this school is going to be wildly different. So that's why I was thinking about this book. Um, there's this main character named Benji, who um, he's one of like the few black students at this elite prep school uh, in Manhattan. But then every summer he goes to Sag Harbor, where there is this small community of African-American people who have kind of made this world. And um, it's in the mid eighties. And uh, every time he goes, he has to like relearn kind of what it feels it means to be a member of like the black community. Like there's handshakes and there's um, new like profanity he has to learn just like every single teenager has to learn how to, <laughs> to swear. Of course, it's a very important part of being a teenager. Um, but it's, it's just this, again, it's like this kind of coming of age story where he's, experiencing things in learning to come into his own while also learning to be a part of this community that throughout most of the year he really doesn't feel connected to so um it's just it's really funny but it's also really sweet and um yeah it's it's a very feel-good book especially um this time of year so that's sag harbor by colson whitehead the next one is the historian by elizabeth Kostova. Long-time listeners are well aware <laughs> that <laughs> way back when, 
I actually looked it up. It was episode number 93. Oof. Way back when Adam was at, I don't even remember what trade show. And Who knows? got to meet Elizabeth Kostova. And I made sure to give him my copy of the story. <laughs> so oh my God, that's right. It. I for- completely forgot about this. Oh yeah. Oh, I was so jealous. I was so jealous. I feel like we don't get jealous of the people each other gets to interview very often. Um, I was so jealous that he got to interview Elizabeth Kostova. Anyway, so the historian um, is about a young woman who um, comes across an ancient book and the selection of letters. um, And the letters are all addressed to my dear and unfortunate successor, which is always a great way to start a story. Um, And they sort of, through these letters, she's kind of plunged into this world of her father's secret past and her mother's fate um and they provide these letters provide a link to sort of trying to figure out the truth about vlad the impaler who um of course was the basis for the legend of dracula and it's just it's so good it's so good that book is incredible it is is such a good book it is so good um and you know she's in like eastern europe and i and i should say this isn't like super contemporary the time period it takes place so she's in like these like dusty libraries in the basement of these like centuries old buildings trying to find out the truth about vlad the impaler and uh and also like her family and how her family is connected to all this and it's just it's the fact that it's a debut, it's just oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm going back and I'm rereading that. I literally, yeah, I, was just I feel like I need to that. too. It's been a while. I was just thinking of that episode and I was like, oh my God, we did talk about all the same. Cause that was for, um, she had a book that came out called The Shadowland, which was really mm-hmm. good as well. But yeah, the historian is just, oh, oof, it's so good. Um, man, I'm like shook now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, my next one is The Monstromologist by Rick Yancey. Uh, Rick Yancey did the Fifth Wave, which is really well known. But the the, the Monstromologist is it's the beginning of a series, and it is very unique. It is definitely talking about pre spooky season. It is definitely a good young adult like horror fantasy. Um, it's about a monster hunting doctor and his apprentice. So very much has that. Um, I feel like that's sort of a a trope that takes place a lot in horror where like there is a apprentice who is learning things and the person that he's learning from is not telling him the full story on everything that's going on like I feel like that happens a lot in in horror uh and this is told through actually this would kind of work in non-traditionally um formatted books too because it is sort of told it's told through a diary of Will Henry who is the um the apprentice and they literally go out and they hunt monsters um, in 19th century New England. And um, they have like, people are always coming at all times of night to ask them for their help. And um, somebody comes in with the body of this girl and the monster that was like eating the girl, they're like entwined. Um, And so they discover this young monster which is like it's a headless thing and it feeds through a a mouth on its chest and it's really very very um I don't want to say graphically written but it's just like one of those horror stories where like 
the way that Rick writes it, you can almost like, it's very visceral. Like you can feel the things that he's describing. Um, and so it takes them on this journey to, to try to stop that type of monster to, from consuming the world. And then like, again, it just, it's like, it's just Gothic and it'll, I've seen it compared to like H.P. Lovecraft meets Arthur Conan Doyle, but I don't love throwing H.P. Lovecraft because he's kind of a terrible human, but that's pretty <laughs> accurate. Um, but yeah, it's a really fun, if you're looking for a horror thing that is young adult E, which I know can be kind of, there's not a ton of those people always know about. It's a great series and um, the covers are all like really spectacular. So yeah, The Monstromologist by Rick Yancey is really, really fun. Um, my next one is On Beauty by Zadie Smith. If y'all aren't already reading Zadie Smith, you need to correct that. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing with your life if you're not reading Zadie Smith? So um, on beauty, I said white teeth because I couldn't decide which one to have. <laughs> yes, you can read that one too. You can read white beauty or uh, white teeth too. So this is on beauty. Is um, I did I had a really hard time deciding. Um, on beauty is a story of an interracial family living in the university town of Wellington, Massachusetts, whose misadventures in the culture wars on both sides of the Atlantic serve to skewer everything from family life to political correctness, the combustive collision between the personal and the pol political, which is just a delightful description of a book. Um, I love everything about Zadie Smith's writing and seriously, if just, read everything written by her all read everything just read it all all yes i completely agree um speaking of someone else you should be reading all of their books uh half of a yellow sun by chimamanda chimamanda ngozi adiche uh so she wrote uh, americana and we should all be feminists um, but this is written all about the um the biafra war which was the civil war in uh, nigeria and it is a story that I didn't know anything about before I'd read this. Um, but it's, it was this really long and very, very violent war where like hundreds of thousands of people died. Um, and what it does is it tells the story of this civil war through five different characters and their experiences throughout it. So um, again, much like Zadie Smith, like if you aren't or haven't read anything by Chumamanda Ngozi Adichie, you really, really need to. And this is a very um, powerful way to learn about a story that you, you might not know anything about if you are listening in the United States uh, where we're recording from. Because again, I, you know, I, I think when you see civil wars in different countries, it may be challenging to try to read about them from a, a historical aspect because you know you might not understand the relationships that go on in that area or um you know the different religious factions and, and there's just so much that can take place in a country that you may not be a part of but this is a approachable way to learn about a, a very tragic but important thing that took place uh in africa so that's half of a yellow sun by chimamanda ngozi adiche my next one is the 13th tale by diane setterfield if you are someone who likes books about books and weird, strange, gothic houses, <laughs> this is the book for you. Um, so this is about um, a writer um, in like her 60s or 70s, uh, Vita, who was well known for a collection of um, short stories, of 12 short stories. Um, and 
she's at the end of her life and she sort of decides it's time to reveal the truth about sort of her journey, life, whatever. And so she contacts a young biographer named Margaret. Um, and in doing so, Margaret learns there's actually a 13th tale that was not in the collection. Um, but she also discovers <laughs> that there's, so there's not only like this like collection of short stories with like a mysterious 13th one. Um, there are two feral twins that's the word from the description, Feral yep. Twins. Um, there's a ghost. There's a topiary garden. There's a weird, mysterious mansion. There's, like, weird cousins. It's just, it's everything. If you're looking for that kind of gothic-type book, um, it's, it's, it's a delightful. It's a delightful story. And I will say, the first time I read it, I actually read, I listened to the audiobook, not realizing it was the abridged version <laughs> until I later started actually reading the book a couple years later. I was like, I don't, I don't remember any of this because there were entire sections missing from the audiobook because I accidentally got the abridged version. So that was fun. Can we talk like, about that for a second? I, that's like, <laughs> I, I know like, we work at a digital book company and I love all of our publishers, but like, do you know why they would make abridged audiobook versions of books that would like leave out whole sections of the story? My guess is it's a time thing and I feel like they tried to take out things that don't necessarily take away from the book if that makes sense. Like it reminds me of this is gonna be the most random thing it reminds me of um at the end of reality tv shows which I watch a lot of there's always like a little disclaimer about how things have been edited and whatever but it didn't like affect the episode or like what actually happened on the episode uh -huh. um my guess is it's a time thing to try and make the book you know they're like they'll read like the reader's digest stories or whatever yeah. that is my guess i honestly don't know but i feel like they've also fallen out of fashion now that um audiobooks have become more popular uh and you know, maybe that's where, like, the whole audiobooks are cheating thing comes from, if you're, you know, because there was a time when you had to be very careful about which audiobook you wanted to get, because you could very accidentally, obviously, get the abridged version if you're not paying attention. Um, yeah. I'm really not sure, honestly, where abridged comes from, but it is my guess that it's, like, a time thing uh, to sort of make it easier or more accessible because you don't have to listen to the whole thing, but mm. you can get the major takeaways from the book because they're not going to cut anything. Presumably, they're not going to cut anything that somehow changes the story for you. Maybe it's also from a production standpoint in the past. Like you said, we it's less of an issue now because so many audio... I mean, they, they still do make physical audiobooks, but so many of them are digital now where it's like maybe it was trying to limit the amount of CDs that they needed to print the audiobooks on or the you know even mm -hmm. further back the tapes kind of type of a thing hmm. yeah now i'm like i kind of want to like oh look book riot has the history and current decline of abridged audiobooks great thanks i'm going to read that this afternoon yeah exactly <laughs> I was just say, we did a deep dive on that. we'll give you guys an update in the upcoming episode um my next one is called downtown owl by chuck klosterman i have a love hate relationship with chuck klosterman i love his writing um when it comes to telling stories I think he can be 
and this is going to sound kind of mean, I think he can be pretty smarmy when he's doing commentary on things that are happening in the world. So like he is well known for his um, music. He he's in the musical world, music in the music world. Words are hard uh, where he does a lot of commentary on um, music that comes out and he's very well versed in that, but I just kind of hate when people get like holier than thou when it comes to reviewing artists when it comes especially when it comes to music i don't know i just it feels very annoying to me but i love the way he tells stories and um the first one he wrote was downtown owl and it is kind of like friday night lights honestly it's almost like friday night lights meets a wendell berry novel um he it's set in north dakota in this town called owl and um it's just this area there's this main character named mitch and he plays high school football which is extremely important there and he's worried about how <laughs> how weird he is or maybe not as weird as everyone else and um it's very much it's again it's like a coming of age story where it's all these characters that are in this small farm town and learning to uh grow up together and it's just this way that how rural communities exist in a certain way um that is a little bit of outside of reality for everyone else in the world and all these characters of different ages come together and they're unified by this blizzard um and it's just it's just a really interesting story and it's really fascinating it's very funny um and it examines kind of what it means to be normal and the fact that like everyone always says when they're a teenager or even when you're older like i just kind of want to be normal and it's like what does that actually mean like is is, is normal an actual thing and the fact that like you could be the most popular person in a high school or you could have no friends or you could be a part of the theater you know community or you could be an athlete or anything in between and the whole time you're probably thinking internally like oh, i wish i was more like these other people and it's everyone kind of goes through these types of things as you're trying to discover who you are so downtown owl is just a really interesting examination of growing up and especially growing up particularly in this one space that chuck is very well uh, known it, he knows very well which is again kind of the midwest and especially in north dakota which is kind of in the middle of nowhere okay so if you read fantasy like i read fantasy and like high fantasy there are two book series that are well known for readers waiting still for a very long time for the next book in the series the first one is um the winds of winter from george R. R. martin um for Game of Thrones. And the other one is the third book in the King Killer Chronicles series by Patrick Rothfuss, mm -hmm. which starts with The Name of the Wind, which is one of my absolute favorite books ever. So um, The Name of the Wind and uh, its sequel, The Wise Man's Fear, and eventually um, the third book. Um, so this is about a, it starts at an inn um, and the innkeeper, um, Kavoth, this like traveler, comes and figures out that he recognizes this innkeeper as, as sort of a man of legend um, who kind of disappeared from society, so to speak. And he convinces Kavoth to tell him his life story about who he is and, and how he got to be. So Kavoth um, sort of grew up in a family of troubadours, and then he ends up at this magical university. And I have to say that 
first I love the magical university that he attends because who doesn't? There's like an entire subplot involving the library, which is just delightful. And I talk about the library in an episode I did a while back about my favorite fantasy libraries. Um, but this also has one of the best, if not the best, entrance exam scenes in like pretty much any book when he gets to school and has to sort of, you know, get his way in. It's just, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> I love everything about it. Just everything about it tells you everything you need to know about this character. Um, and this is just one of those books that people love for good reason. Um, and, you know, I know there was like a thing going around last week, was it on the on the book Twitters about yeah. um, how... Well, I guess it happens every like six months. <laughs> Something yeah. comes up where, you know, writers don't owe you their next book. And I feel like this particular one was centered on Patrick Rothfuss, although I don't remember why. Um, and then, of course, it happened with George R. R. Martin after the Hugos. And that's a whole other story, but whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, we could do like a six episode <laughs> on the series. Hugos. We won't talk about that right now. Um, and so, yeah, so we've been waiting. This, the sequel, The Wise Man's Fear, came out, I think, in 2011. Um, so it's been almost 10 years and, you know, I'm actually, and I like, when I read these books, I feel the same way about Game of Thrones. When I read them, would it be great if the book had an ending? Sure. But these stand on their own for me as it is. And I don't actually have, like, I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like it takes away from the book series for me by not having the conclusion. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so good. It's, oh, and it's becoming, oh, is it a TV show? Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think, was involved in something right. with this. And yeah. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but I think what ended up happening last week was somebody started a, like, a petition.org type of, like, a thing where it that was like right. sign this petition to get Patrick Rothfuss to finish his novels and like all everyone else and like all these authors were like hey if you're a reader don't ever do that because it's not helping anything and then like he I think he did a video it wasn't last week but it was like relatively recently where he was like feel bad about this but yes it's not done yet but like like you said it's like yes ever and also don't don't message or jar martin or do anything and be like you're getting old you should finish these books before you die like that's not cool don't do any of that kind of thing it's leave them leave leave let leave, leave them alone they're they're creating stuff too and it's hard and and like i feel like it would be really hard to know you know you know like you think about see we're going off clearly on a whole tangent uh, that's here. okay but you know you're thinking about something like Harry Potter or um, Twilight or, you know, like I rage quit Twilight, the, the last book, because I was so mad. Or <laughs> I'm undecided on if I'll read Midnight Sun. That's a different conversation. Um, oh, The Hunger Games. You know, like uh -huh. when you have this book series, which has these beloved characters and people get emotionally invested in them, it's, you can't please everybody mm -hmm. and as the more time has gone on you know you have those people who get upset because you haven't finished it but also 10 years ago like twitter existed facebook existed these mm -hmm. things existed but i feel like you didn't like the angry fans maybe weren't quite as loud <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 
<laughs> and so now not only do you have to like finish this book that ties up this series that you've been working on for probably like two decades, if not longer in the course of George R.R. Martin, mm-hmm. um, so you have to tie it up. You're going to make people mad. You know, you're going to make people mad. Mm-hmm. And those mad fans have a big platform. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure yeah. that I would not want to write under. <laughs> so I forgive the fact that, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on for these authors and I forgive them taking their time. Yeah. For books. Books are really hard to write, you guys. And especially when there is all that pressure to be like, and also with George R. R. Martin, like he has thrown his characters so far apart from each other. And like, he's, I'm sure he's probably like, how do I bring them back? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like you can see that in the final season of the show, which had its own problems separate from George R. R. Martin. But, you know, these these journeys that in the first season took like months for these characters to make suddenly within like five minutes mm-hmm. because you have to bring these characters together somehow. And how do you do that? Well, you yeah. just sort of speed up time and we're just going to pretend that yeah. didn't happen. <laughs> they all have a tar- They all have a TARDIS. I think they all have a TARDIS them. and they can just like get wherever they need to, whenever they need to like <laughs> super quick. And <laughs> yeah. So you have these. Yeah. So I'm okay with, I don't mind writers taking a long time. I know that's, that is a personal thing and others feel differently, but they don't take away the books for me. Um, yeah, just go, yeah. Another, just go start another fantasy series. There's so There's many. There's a lot of them that are yeah. finished. There are a lot that of are them finished. that are complete. Yeah, go read the uh, go read N.K. Jemisin. She writes a book seemingly like every three months. She's a machine, and they're all Hugo Award winners and fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Hugo Award winners, my last one that I have here, look at that little tie-in. Uh, I uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. Uh, this is, man, this is such a fun book. And I think it became... Either a movie or a... It was a TV movie. Show. No, it was a TV show. TV show, yeah. Which is pretty good. Um, but it's set in the Napoleonic Wars. It's like the early 1800s. Um, and people believe that magic is gone from England uh, until Mr. Norrell, who is like very reclusive, he reveals his powers and he becomes this overnight celebrity. And there's this other practicing magician um, who's really young and his name is Jonathan Strange. And he becomes Norrell's pupil and um, they join forces to fight in the war against France um it's just a really it's an incredible story and um my favorite thing uh i think my favorite thing about historical fiction as a genre is how wide-ranging it can truly be is like you can do historical fiction where it's like a can uh like very realistic set in world war ii and it's just like all you do is you just kind of change a relationship or you can do what Susanna Clark did and be like, this is based in the Napoleonic Wars. Also, there's magi- magicians and the magicians fought France. And like, I just love that those are both historical fiction. It makes me so happy. I don't know why. I just, it's like, it can be so wide ranging as long as there's like something kind of realistic that happened. Um, historical fiction. So yeah, if you like magicians, if you're a fan of, um, weirdly, it kind of reminds me almost like, like the prestige adjacent, like that movie, The Prestige. I don't know why it reminds me of that, but it kind of does. Um, Because there's there's two different magicians who have very different points of view on things, but they sort of work together, but they're also sort of not working together at all. And it's just very, very interesting. So Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is a really, really, really great book. It's really fun. And Susanna Clark is fabulous. I have a confession. I I did not like that book. (laughs) I didn't even finish it. (laughs) Oh, man, I loved it. This is rare. We don't usually have... 
books where we're uh yeah she had a book that just came out called um Piranesi I think but yeah that's weird I I have tried reading this book like five times. I couldn't get into the TV show. Like there's a part in the book, like I'm I get I always get to the same spot. There's a whole thing with like a oh god, the the bride dies or something like that. Like it's early in the book and they like bring her back, but it's not quite what they would thought, you know. Um, which is what happens when you mess around with necromancy and all that stuff. And every time I'm just like I can't get past this part. I like yeah. that scene. I like that idea, but I try to keep reading. I'm like, I can't do it. <laughs> and even in the TV show, that's about the time when I'm just like, you know what? I'm not really feeling this. So. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. All right. My last book is probably my most favorite nonfiction book ever. Um, and that is The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Oh man, you guys, this book is just, it is, okay. First, everything Eric Larson writes is genius. <laughs> which we had talked about before. Yeah. Um, but The Devil in the White City is about, um, well, there's two things happening at the same time. First is Chicago is home to the World's Fair um, during like the Gilded Age. Um, and they are building this whole city within Chicago that they're calling the White City. Um, and at the same time, there is a young doctor, Henry Holmes, who uh, is a serial killer. <laughs> uh, he super, he super is. And is sort of adjacent. He has this hotel um, where he's sort of adjacent to the White City or the, yeah, the White City. And, um, you know, these people will travel in and stay at his hotel and then mysteriously die. It's just all true story. All true story. Mm-hmm. Um, God, it's so good. And it's one of those not, I mean, I read a lot of nonfiction and I always did, but I think this was sort of the first nonfiction book I read where I saw an author apply fiction writing techniques Mm -hmm. to the book yeah um in a way i had like i had never seen that before Mm -hmm. um it's so good though it's it gets a little graphic because yeah henry holmes um tortures his people uh that he kills um yeah so there's like it's like a little sweeney toddy minus the music um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's oh my god that's so accurate that's yeah so- it's a little sweeney toddy yeah so i feel like sweeney todd and that whole idea of this person who presents one face to the outside and then lures people into his business yeah <laughs> and kills them you will enjoy the devil in the way today and just sort of learning about you know we don't have world's fairs obviously anymore um and how this idea of the world's fair came to be and how they like built this huge city within a city. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things that are created that were created for the world's fair that we'd never seen before. You know, it's a fair, mm-hmm. um, that we'd never, like the world had never seen before. Now we are very familiar with them and it's just, it's a really, really good book, but can get a, more graphic a little sweeney toddy is how i'm gonna start <laughs> describing things because that's like my favorite description i think i've ever heard 
Um, yeah, little, it's a little Sweeney Toddy. Yeah, but I know what you mean about like using fictional writing, um, like using those techniques. Um, like Matthew Desmond, who wrote Evicted, who was on the podcast a, a couple years ago, he does that and that's nonfiction. And then another one, which actually technically counts because it was written in 2010, uh, The Poisoner's Handbook by Deborah Blum, oh, yeah. which I mm-hmm. um, talked about a bunch. But that's another one where it's in the jazz age and it's um, all about like how the basically people came to be able to use um chemistry to detect like poisons and murder and stuff but it's the same thing it's like they use this fictional writing style to tell very true stories so also this has been in like hollywood production hell for like 10 years mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe 20 i think it came out like early in the, the 2000s and it's last i heard it was like a scorsese leo dicaprio thing which i am totally on board for but oh man that sounds right yeah what happens because it's it's yeah um what's his uh you know who would be perfect i feel like for one of his roles is um and he's retired oh wow i'm drawing a complete blank he was in gangs of new york and my left foot and oh no i know you're talking about um there will be blood yep um oh god everyone's just gonna be like yelling at me i'm just they're gonna, gonna be yelling at you you can always I, edit this part out i'm just gonna uh, keep it in and i'm gonna say i'm gonna look it up real quick because i i can't believe that i'm it, drawing is daniel's first name daniel day lewis oh my god thank you Whew. that's gonna bother me oh yeah you could start over that's so you okay. can just edit it i'm just okay. leaving it obviously but all this it um, but yeah, Devil in the White City, yeah, that's that's very much like an overdrive book. Like, I feel like there's a lot of times when we'll bring someone on who hasn't been on the podcast in a while. And like, without that's one of those books where like, it'll just come up. We're like, yeah, I love it. I just read Devil in the White City. It's like um, House of Leaves or like Penny Reed. But there's like just things mm-hmm. that like, yeah, happen here. Um, okay, those are all of our recommendations. Um, if you want another book that's historical fiction, um, Big Library just kicked off. And you can go to biglibrary.com and learn more information about the title, which is The Darwin Affair. Or you can listen to our episode from last weekend, which is a bonus episode where Jill and I interviewed uh, Tim Mason, the author. Um, anything else going on that you... I don't think so. Think? Okay, cool. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.